God is doing here at Loudoun Valley. I'm just reflecting on the, the way things change and yet oftentimes stay the same. So when I first started out in pastoral ministry, uh, it was a season of, of diapers and strollers in my family. Uh, diapers and strollers inevitably give way to beta blockers and college tuition payments. I, I think about how many of you uh, I saw and I just see, I remember their wedding. I remember the birth of that child. I remember that baptism. And to see uh, this church and Jacob and Janice and, uh, and all of you uh, faithfully uh, loving the Lord uh, is just a real, a real joy to me. And uh, I know that ultimately it's uh, a testimony to the Lord's great kindness and faithfulness. So I take great joy in that. Uh, this morning, I want to think together uh, about Genesis uh, chapter 22, uh, a story that uh, if you've been around church for any amount of time, I imagine is pretty familiar to you, um, but a story still worth uh, looking at in detail. So Genesis chapter 22, uh, and let's consider together verses 1 to 19. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to that day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your, own, your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that's on the seashore. 
and your offspring shall possess the gates of its enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Well, we all know that actions speak louder than words. As they say, talk is cheap. We tell people, don't tell me, show me. Well done is better than well said. We can all think of examples of people who talk a good game, but when it boils down to it, their actions tell a different story. Whether it's someone who publishes a book about virtue and then has to admit in public that they gamble a bit too much. Or someone who champions women's rights, admitting that he's used his power to harass his female subordinates. Or someone who talks on and on about global warming but warms up their car for 30 minutes before driving 10 blocks. Maybe just someone in your life who keeps apologizing over and over again for the same things. We know it's much easier to say that you believe something, that you feel something, that you care about something. It's much easier to pay lip service to those things than to actually live them out in your actions. And in our passage for today from Genesis, we see our forefather Abraham's faith being put to the test. Abraham was a man who claimed to love God. He claimed to fear God and trust God. Uh, Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, he demonstrates his faith by leaving his father's homeland and going out at the Lord's command without a clear sense of where exactly he was going. If you're familiar with the Genesis narrative, Abraham's also had some lapses along the way. Abraham and his wife Sarah have trouble believing that they're really going to have a child in their old age, despite the Lord's promise to that effect. But there's one test left for Abraham, one opportunity standing before him to prove his faith, to demonstrate that he believes God's promise. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Genesis 22. There in verse 1 it says, uh, After these things the Lord tested Abraham. So after these things, you need some background information. So in order to understand what's happening in chapter 22, uh, you need to know what's come a bit before in the story. You need to know that Isaac, this son, is, is a miracle baby. He's the child of promise. God had come to Abraham many years earlier and, and made him a promise. He really promised him three things. That his descendants would one day become a great nation. That God would give his descendants a land where they could live in peace. And that God would bless the whole world through Abraham's family. The problem with that promise was that Abraham was already an elderly man. He and his wife, Sarah, who was also elderly, had no children. But God had promised them. He said, I will give you a son. And through your son, I will keep all of these promises. More descendants than you could ever imagine. A land for them to live in. And the blessing of the whole world through your descendants. After years of waiting, Abraham jumped the gun. And he had a child with his his wife's servant, a woman named Hagar. The boy's name was Ishmael. But God had made it clear that, that he wasn't working according to Abraham's plan. He wasn't on Abraham's timetable. 
that he would give him this promised son when the time was right through Sarah. So at the end of chapter 21, uh, Ishmael is sent off into the wilderness. At the beginning of chapter 21, this child of promise is finally born, Isaac, born to Abraham through Sarah. So when chapter 22 opens, Isaac has grown. He's described there in verse 5 and again in verse 12 using a a word that our translation uh, renders a boy, but is probably best understood as being a a sort of late teenager. Uh, From the story, he must have been at least old enough to carry on a conversation with his father, at least old enough to carry wood up a mountain. Uh, But it's into this family, this presumably happy family, it's into this family that this terrible test comes. It's rolling like a hand grenade with the pin pulled. Everything is going to change after this test. From this point on, the, the, the dramatic tension in our passage, from, from the moment the Lord tells him to, to take his son and sacrifice it, everything just keeps getting ratcheted up until the point where the knife is hanging over Abraham's son and the, the tension is unbearable. There in verse 2, the Lord speaks to Abraham. He says, take your son. Okay. Your only son. Yeah, that's right. Ishmael's now out of the picture. Abraham only has one son. Take your only son, Isaac. Yep, that's the one. Whom you love. Indeed, Abraham does. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. Right? Everything in us cries out, No. God, we've been waiting for this child for 21 chapters. And now he's here? And you want Abraham to kill him? To offer him as a burnt offering? To to slit his throat and butcher him and burn him like an animal? God, no, never. You're you're not like that. You hate child sacrifice. You're, You're always faithful to your promises. You would never do that. When we read this command, questions come flooding into our minds. How could God command such a horrific thing? Doesn't this seem like the exact opposite of what God would want, of what God would command Abraham to do? What was Abraham thinking? Even more, what was Isaac thinking? Even more, what would I do if I were in the same situation? Was this all just a cruel hoax? A charade to see if God could push Abraham over the edge? People have long debated the answers to these questions. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel laureate and himself a Holocaust survivor, he argued in one of his books that it was wrong of God even to ask this of Abraham. Uh, The philosopher Immanuel Kant wrote that Abraham should have been outraged by this, quote, supposedly divine voice, and he should have distrusted it immediately. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the noted purveyor of atheist bombast, shares their sense of disapproval. He says this, This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. What do we make of this extraordinary command? Well, rather than jump to our own conclusions, rather than rendering our own judgments, we should take our cues from the text itself. 
We should see why God told Abraham to do this, what it is that he intended to bring about, and how we should feel about Abraham's willingness to carry it out. So as we look at this extraordinary story, let's, let's examine three things together. First, let's see God's test. Second, we'll see Abraham's faith. And then finally, we'll see God's great love. So first, God's test. Again, in verse 1, we're told that all of this is a test. We know that. God has no desire for Abraham to kill his son, but Abraham doesn't know that. Otherwise, it's not really a test. Now, what is God testing? It's clearly Abraham's faith, right? There in verse 12, the angel of the Lord says, Now I know you fear God because you were willing to go through all of this. This whole event was meant to prove something about Abraham, to demonstrate something to this angel, to Abraham himself, and to us. Abraham said that he believed the Lord. He had sacrificed. He had left his father's home. He had gone out, and all that is good. But here, his faith is being put to the ultimate test. The the faith that he claimed to have is being proved at the very point of the one person he loved most, his son, this son of promise that he's waited for for so long. If he's willing to sacrifice Isaac simply because the Lord told him to do it, his faith would be proved. It would be tested by fire. You can see the position that Abraham was in. It's one thing to wait an unreasonable amount of time for a child. It's another thing to then actually destroy that child with your own hands. Right? God's command seems to clearly undermine God's promise. God's promised that he's going to do something, but then his command makes it seem impossible. Right? It, it would be like receiving, if you're a football fan, right? it would be like receiving an oracle that that the Washington football team is going to draft a quarterback next year that will lead them to, to five Super Bowl championships. But by the way, they, they have to trade that quarterback to the Cowboys, right? The command, the instruction, seems to undermine the promise. It's impossible for everything God has promised to Abraham, it's impossible for it to come true if Abraham obeys the Lord and kills his child. And so it seems that Abraham's left with two options in terms of how he responds Either he concludes that God is bipolar, not knowing his own mind, or irrationally swinging between one idea and another, and so he must be resisted. Or Abraham has to come to the conclusion that God knows what he's doing, and that Abraham himself is the one who's lacking, that Abraham can't see the resolution from his limited vantage point, and so he needs to trust the Lord. Either Abraham distrusts his own perception and trusts God, or he trusts his own instincts and distrusts the Lord. Those are the two options. This is the test. Who will Abraham love most, Isaac or God? Who does Abraham trust when it really comes down to it? Himself or the Lord? Friends, I wonder how all of this sounds to you. Do you find it surprising that God would test Abraham in this way? We see in the Bible God is referred to as the one who tests the heart of men. And we do see that he often 
He often tests or proves people. Perhaps the most famous example is in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites wander in the desert, and the Lord tests them to see if they'll listen to his voice and trust him to provide the food and the water that they need. But it's important for us to to see that God never tests his people in a cruel or capricious way. And, And when it boils down to it, isn't that what we're all slightly afraid of? We, we read this story in Genesis 22, and we're slightly nervous that God is just messing with Abraham, treating him like a, like a wanton boy treats a fly. And perhaps more importantly, doesn't this story make us fear that he might toy with us in the same way? That, that God might, might give me some difficulty, some struggle to, to test me, but in reality, God's just being a bit, a bit cruel and vindictive. But friends, that's not what's happening here. God's purpose is never to cause his people to stumble. James makes that clear in James 1.13. He says, the Lord never tempts us so as to cause us to sin. God's purposes in testing his people are always to strengthen us and to reveal what he's put in us. Right? Just like heat purifies and tempers steel to make it rock solid. Just like muscles only grow when you put them under stress. In the same way, brothers and sisters, you can probably identify from your own life that that faith doesn't normally grow and strengthen in times of ease and in times of prosperity. No, it's when we're called upon to trust the Lord. When we can't see how the story will have a happy ending, it's in those moments that our faith really grows and is proved. I was just talking last night with, with my wife and we were going over some just things going on in life, and, and I, I said something to the effect of, like, I think the Lord gives us these troubles so that we'll stay dependent on him and so we'll continue to pray. And she said, yeah, but it, it feels like every day is this way. And I was like, I'm only 46, but I, I think this is how it's going to be. Like, I think that's what the Lord does, right? If, if past results are sort of indication of future prospects, it seems like the Lord is pleased to give us difficulties and struggles and trials so that we'll trust him. They're not meant to be a stumbling block before us because his purposes are always good. You can see that with Abraham, can't you? You can see God's good purpose, right? We get to know the whole story, right? We get to see that God is demonstrating something about himself to Abraham. He's proving and increasing and strengthening his faith and his dependence on the Lord. So Christian, you're not likely to be called upon to obey the Lord in the same way that Abraham was. But like he did with Abraham, the Lord will most certainly send circumstances into your life that are tailor-made to test your faith. And so think about your life. Think about the circumstances of your daily life. What might be a God-given test of your faith? Maybe it's a deep disappointment. Your job, your marriage, your relationships, they're just simply not going the way you'd hoped. And you're left to wonder if you really can trust God, that he's enough to satisfy you if all these other things don't come through. Maybe it's a difficulty, a health problem, depression, persecution for your faith, 
an experience of being sinned against by someone who doesn't apologize. Maybe it's the ramifications of, a, of sin in your own life. And it really wonders, it leaves you to wonder, is God really for me? You begin to wonder, is he actually against me? Friends, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, or 2, 2, 4, reminds us to count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, God's will for our lives may well involve other things than simply our peace and our momentary success and our momentary comfort. And so when circumstances don't go your way, when challenges come, when obstacles block your path, you can be sure that God is using them to build your faith. And that brings us to our second point for this morning, and that is Abraham's faith. Look at how he responds to the Lord's extraordinary command. There in verse 3, we see that he got up early the next morning and got to work. It doesn't appear that God put a time frame on this project. He simply said to do it. He didn't say how quickly or when. I certainly would have been tempted to put it off for a while, to hope maybe circumstances on the ground would change. But not Abraham. He gets up early the next morning. He didn't seem to hesitate to do what the Lord commanded. And not only does he not hesitate, he goes on a a three-day journey looking for the place where he's to sacrifice his son. It means he has three days to think about what he's doing. Three days for him to, to lose his faith and lose his nerve. But he doesn't. I mean, can you imagine Abraham's emotions as he makes this trek? Can you imagine the, the confusion, the sadness, the fear? This was Isaac, his son, his only son, the son that he loved with all his heart, the son that he'd waited for his whole life, the son who represented in his body all of Abraham's hope for the future. Friends, can you see that God is calling Abraham to put everything on the chopping block? Now, you might wonder if God really has the right to do this. Certainly some of the quotes I read to you earlier, uh, people have questioned that, to put it mildly. Uh, You have to ask yourself, Does God have the right to ask Abraham to do this? Well, the answer is clearly yes, on at least two levels. First, all life belongs to God. Isaac doesn't belong to Abraham. He belongs to God. Just like all of our children don't belong to us, they belong to the Lord. God is the creator and author of life. Every man, woman, child, fish, whatever, it's all his. It's his handiwork. He has authority over everything the way that a potter has authority over clay. He can determine what he wants to do with it. Later on in the Old Testament, the Lord says this in Deuteronomy 32. He says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So friends, we have to acknowledge that God takes the lives of human beings every day. And while it's often painful, we don't have the right to challenge his decisions. You and I don't have the right to take a life, that's murder. But God can, 
and he does according to his own plans and purposes. God even has the right to tell other uh, institutions to take a life on his behalf as when a government administers capital punishment in a just way. And so it's worth saying at the outset that we just need to step back and put this command to Abraham in perspective. God is not guilty here of overreaching his authority. But it's also clear that God has the right to command this of Abraham in that he always deserves to be and thus always insists on being our highest priority and our greatest love. When God gives this command to Abraham, he's essentially asking, who matters more to you? If you could only have one of us, Isaac or me, God is commanding Abraham to lay his most precious treasure on the altar, to give back, as it were, God's most precious gift. You see there in verse 5, Abraham understands that what he is going to do is an act of worship. It's a matter of proclaiming God's great worthiness. That's because anything that you would choose over the Lord is functionally your God. It is the thing you worship in that choice. Anything that you wouldn't bind up and slaughter, so to speak, at God's command is an idol in your life. It is the thing you worship. If Abraham refuses God's command here, it would be tantamount to making Isaac into his highest love, into saying that Isaac is in fact my God. So friends, we can't get it twisted. It's not just Abraham who's called to to think in this way. All of God's people are called to acknowledge that the Lord is our highest good, our greatest love, our number one commitment and priority. So in Luke chapter 14, the Lord Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and here hate has the, the sense of regarding as less important. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right? That's extraordinary. I love my father. I love my mother. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my brother. I don't have a sister, but I love my own life. And Jesus says, you have to love me more than all of that. Following me means all of those things are decidedly second place in your life. Otherwise, there is no discipleship. Jesus would rather you not follow him than follow him and and put him in second place. A few verses later, Jesus says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's like Jesus is saying, look, in case you're not good at like connecting dots, right? Everything has to go, right? We may not be asked to make the same sacrifice that Abraham made, but like Abraham, we must be prepared to put everything on the table because the Lord is worthy and he has the right to ask anything of us. You can imagine Abraham didn't sleep much on that three-day journey, but still he's ready to go through with the sacrifice. And you see there in verses 9 to 10, it's like the narrative grinds to a halt. It's like a thriller movie where they put the, they ratchet up the tension by putting the critical moment in slow motion. And you're like, just get it over with. Right? We get a description of every excruciating detail 
there in verses 9 and 10. Abraham builds the altar. Then he puts the wood on it. Then he binds Isaac for the slaughter. Then he reaches out his hand. Then just when the tension is unbearable, he takes the knife to slaughter his son. What we see here is Abraham is really and truly ready to go through with it. When he raises that knife in verse 10, it is to obey the Lord fully. He is prepared to do exactly what God has told him, however difficult, however confusing. In the New Testament book of James, the author's making the point that the faith by which we're saved is always accompanied by good works. And so in order to illustrate the point, James points back to our passage, to these verses. Uh, We read in James chapter 2, in verses 18 to 23. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want it to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Friends, it's important to see what it is that Abraham is commended for here because you might be tempted to think that what's really remarkable is his obedience. And of course that's true. Abraham does obey the Lord, but he's not obeying the Lord the way a prisoner obeys his captor without any love or affection or joy. He's not obeying merely in recognition of God's superior strength. No, what motivates Abraham's obedience, the reason why he does what God commands him to do, according to James, is his faith. Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac because he believed something, because he believed that something was true. Specifically, he believed that God could still keep his promise even if Abraham obeyed this surprising command. I think we see that belief in two places in our passage. You see it hinted there in verse 5, where Abraham tells his servants to stay behind. Uh, Presumably, it would be a bit difficult to explain what's about to happen. So he tells these servants, you guys stay here. The boy and I are going to go over there. But you see there in verse 5, he tells them, the boy and I will return. He's going to sacrifice Isaac, but he's still sure somehow that they're coming back together. He seems to have worked it out that this was the only way for God's promises to come true. Hebrews chapter 11 confirms for us that Abraham was in fact expecting God to raise Isaac from the dead. In in Hebrews 11 verses 17 to 19, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now listen. He, that is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
You see, Abraham's faith was his willingness to trust God's goodness and God's power and God's plan, even when he couldn't see how it would work out. He only knew that God told him he would make a great nation through this child. And nothing was going to change that. I think you also see Abraham's faith in this extraordinary uh, exchange there in verses 7 to 8. It says there, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Now, Abraham had no idea how this story was going to end exactly. He had no idea that God was going to do what God did. But he did know God. He knew that God is a provider. He says there in verse 14, the Lord will provide. His trust was in the Lord. He knew that God's faithfulness and his power would make it sure that this situation was resolved, even if it wasn't exactly clear how it was going to happen. So Abraham passes this test of faith with flying colors. His faith is proven. In fact, it's deepened through this experience. His faith wasn't all talk. He walked the walk. He had been through the crucible and come out stronger. And again, brothers and sisters, I think the application for us is clear. The New Testament holds out Abraham as an example for us as faith under testing. We who claim to have faith in Jesus should live it out in deeds and in words, even when we can't understand exactly how everything is going to end. And that brings us to our third and final thing to see this morning, and that is God's great love. God is testing Abraham here, but in a way, Abraham's faith is putting God to the test, isn't it? He resigns himself completely to God's care. Right? He puts himself utterly at the mercy of God's will. And so if God doesn't provide, if God doesn't intervene, then everything is lost. It only remains to be seen whether God will be faithful to his promise. When it boils down to it, then if God is not faithful, then that Abraham also is being completely irrational. If God is like Molech, the so-called God of the Canaanites to whom they would sacrifice their children, then if God is like that, then we should not do what Abraham did. Right? If God is like that, then we should hate him. Right? We should despise him. We should avoid him at all costs. If God is like that, then Elie Wiesel and, and Dawkins and Kant are all correct. But if he's good, and if he can always be relied upon to keep his promises and to do what's right in every circumstance, then Abraham is doing the only thing that makes any sense, and that is trusting him and doing what he says. So friends, if God is not trustworthy, then you and I should not rely on him in times of difficulty. But if he is, then we must trust him. And friends, the very good news The news that you and I need this afternoon and every day from here on out is that what we see in our passage for this morning is that God is good, that he is loving, that he is faithful. What happens next makes it clear that he has never meant to harm Abraham or Isaac, that his intentions toward him and and toward all the people of faith who will be Abraham's spiritual descendants, all of his intentions are always good all the time. Look at what happens next. He stays Abraham's hand. 
mercifully sparing the boy's life. An angel calls there in verses 11 and 12, Abraham, stop. In verse 13, Abraham looks up. There's a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. The Lord has seen to provide a substitute, a sacrifice. Can you see the Lord's great love and mercy? Here on Mount Moriah, the Lord has provided a substitute for Isaac. Brothers and sisters, that's the good news. That's the great point of this whole event. The testing of Abraham reveals that he fears the Lord, and it reveals that he won't withhold anything from God. But what does it reveal about the Lord? What does Abraham see so clearly now? Well, it's that the Lord will provide. Right there in verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The name there is Jehovah Jireh. Literally, it means the Lord will see. Yahweh will see to it. He will provide everything that's needed. He will provide the very thing that he demands from us, just as he provides the replacement for Isaac. There in verse 14, that little, that little proverb, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided, it's, it's prophetic. Abraham is saying far more than he knows. Right again, on the, the, the literal translation is, on the mountain of the Lord, he will be seen. It will be provided. And brothers and sisters, almost 2,000 years after these events in Genesis 22, there'd be a city covering this mountain, a city called Jerusalem. And there in that city, or just outside of it, something extraordinary happened. Something that ultimately brings the story of Abraham and Isaac to its conclusion. Because there, in that same place, God himself did what he spared Abraham from doing. God, Jehovah Jireh, the God who sees to it, the God who provides, he did the unimaginable. He sent his own son, the Lord Jesus, to die as the final and eternal sacrifice for our sins. Right, in this passage, we see Isaac carrying the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain. Then 2,000 years later, you see the Lord Jesus carrying his own cross out of the city. But whereas the Lord intervenes to stop the slaughter of Isaac, no such cry of relief is heard at Calvary. God himself at the cross endures what he spares Isaac or Abraham. God sacrifices his son, his only son, the son that he loved, so that you and I might live. Don't you see, if you have any doubts about God's love, don't you see he spared Abraham's son, but he didn't spare his own? He took on himself the sacrifice that our sins demanded. There on the cross, God the Father did not hold his hand. He he struck the blow of justice against his perfect beloved son so that Jesus might bear the wrath for all of our sin. He sacrificed far more than any of us could imagine. At the Mount of Crucifixion, we see a better father than Abraham sacrificing a better son than Isaac so that we could be spared. 
Can you see what we learn about God from all of this? It's that he loves us. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac showed his faith. God the Father's sacrifice of Jesus shows his great love. In Romans 5, friends, this is important, listen to this. We read in verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You'd expect Paul would say, Jesus shows his great love for us in that he died for us while we were still sinners. But that's not what Paul's saying. The sacrifice of Christ is telling us something about the love of God the Father, that he didn't withhold his most treasured relationship from us, that he gave us everything when he gave us his son. Friends, I think Genesis 22 is meant to give us the emotional vocabulary to understand what God the Father does at Calvary. The idea of Abraham sacrificing his precious son Isaac makes us want to weep and recoil. And so we have some tiny taste of how extraordinary, how loving, how unimaginable it would be that God should provide redemption for us, his enemies, at the cost of his own son. As we conclude, this story demands a response from us. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, maybe you're invited by a friend or a neighbor, maybe you're a young person and you've grown up hearing these truths, but you've never really embraced them and made them your own, whatever it is that your story is this morning, you are invited to step into this story today by putting your trust in God's provision of a substitute. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for the sins of anyone who would put their trust in him. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And so Jesus is alive now and extends salvation and grace to you. You can be spared just as Isaac was spared. And for those of us who are Christians, can you see what's required from you? God hasn't withheld anything from you. He's provided his beloved son. And what he asks of us in response is that we rejoice, that we believe that he loves us, that we love him in return, that we exalt him, that we trust him in those times of difficulty when it's hard. In Romans 8, 32, Paul draws a conclusion for us. He writes this. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The the word that Paul uses there in Romans 8.32, it's intentionally lifted from Genesis 22, from this, this passage about Abraham and Isaac. God did not spare his son. So what? What's the point? Paul tells us, won't he graciously give us all things? If God looked at you while you were still his enemy and said, I will give you my son in order to make you my adopted child, what exactly is going to be too much? What do you need that God's going to say, that's too much of a price for me to pay? 
Friends, you can see how that's what we need to know in order to live by faith when we're tested like Abraham. If we trust the Lord's love, if we trust his goodness, if we trust that he's done everything necessary to bring us into his family and to provide us with eternal life, then can't we endure any struggle, any trouble, any difficulty? Can't we walk through whatever it is that God has ordained for us? There in verse 12, the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. See, on that mountain, something was proven. Something was tested, demonstrated, made manifest so that it could no longer be questioned whatsoever. If Abraham was willing to go there, if he wouldn't withhold his son, well, now we know that he fears the Lord and trusts him. And when a Christian looks at the cross, we say, now we know. Something's been proven. Something's been demonstrated beyond a doubt. Now we know that you love us because you haven't withheld from us your son, your only son. So the the response demanded from us when we look to the cross of Jesus is faith and trust and love and worship. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in who you are and in what you've done for us. We see your goodness and your faithfulness. We see that you kept every one of your promises to Abram. We see that you did things that seemed impossible. We see that when he was called upon to put his faith in you, you never let him down. And Father, when we see that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to suffer and to die for us, we have no doubt about your love. Holy Spirit, would you come and help us? Would you help us to remember the love that we've received? Would you help us, Holy Spirit, to put our trust in Christ in times of trial and difficulty? And we ask all these things in his beautiful name. Amen.